Our scripture reading today is from Acts 10, verses 34 through 48. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Trevor, for reading that passage for us. Let me give a little context for it. We'll set it up. So this, is, this text that he read starts in verse 34. The first half of Acts 10 uh, that was leading up to this really set the stage for this sermon that Peter just preached. It's, it's a sermon that he preaches in the home of a centurion named Cornelius. And here's what happened. Uh, so in a vision, God appeared to Cornelius. And he told Cornelius to send for the apostle Peter because the message that Peter was commanded to preach was the message that Cornelius needed to hear in order to be saved. While that was happening, the Lord also appeared to Peter in a vision and he told Peter that men were coming for him and that he was to go with them to the home of Cornelius. So this is really a divine meeting, right? This is God putting people together very specifically. What we're going to do is we're going to get into why this particular meeting was divinely orchestrated and why it's so beautiful that it was. Because what's happening here is a very particular moment in history. If you remember, when Jesus gave his great commission to the church, he said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, right? That we are to take the gospel into the world. Part of the radical nature of the Great Commission 
is that it's Jesus who's part of the people of Israel telling his descendants to go out and proclaim the gospel of him, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, not only to Jewish people, but to everybody. And so that's what is happening here. We're in this moment where up until now, the gospel has been proclaimed widely to mostly just Jewish people. But there's a shift that's happening here. And so when Peter gets his vision from the Lord that people are going to come and take him to the home of Cornelius, that's when he's up on a roof praying and he sees a sheet descend. And maybe you're familiar with this story if you've read the book of Acts. It descends from heaven and it's filled with all kinds of animals, animals who were kosher, animals who were not kosher. And the Lord told Peter, take and eat. And Peter refused. He, he rebuffed that idea. He said, I've 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 never eaten anything unclean or common. And then the Lord said to him, what I have made clean, do not call common. And then God showed Peter that the gospel was going to be like that. That the gospel was going to go to the Gentiles. The word Gentile, just basically what the word Gentile means is non-Jewish. So in the Jewish world, there were Jews and there were Gentiles and everybody else was a Gentile, really no matter where they were from, as long as they weren't Jewish. So the tension in the church at that time centered around a question. And the question was, what does it take to truly convert? What does it take to really become a Christian? And many held that in order to convert to Christianity, you had to convert to Judaism first, and you'd convert to Judaism, and then once you had converted to Judaism, then you would convert to Christianity. So the question is, well, okay, okay, Peter is now at the home, in a Gentile home, and he's there to preach the gospel. What is, what is the gospel he's going to proclaim? Is he going, are you on the edge of your seats? Is he going to say, here's what you need to do in order to be saved. You need to convert to Judaism, and then hang a right, and convert to Christ, Or is he going to say something else? Because if he says something else, spoiler alert, he does. If he says something else, it's radical. It's radical. Several years ago, I spent some time on the Yakima Indian Reservation in Washington State. Um, I was there at the invitation of a missionary who lived there named Chris Granberry. And uh, we, we took this trip out there, uh, myself and two other people from our church in Kansas City, and... um, just to kind of see the place, you know, before we organized a group to come uh, and spend some time there in the summer. And it happened that while we were there, uh, there was a tragedy on the reservation. An infant died. And they had a funeral. And Chris, the missionary there, they invited Chris to come be a part of this funeral because he was part of the community. And because we were Chris's guests, they invited us as well to come to this traditional Yakima Nation funeral in one of the longhouses there uh, on the reservation. And it was, it was strange to be so welcome and yet feel also so foreign at the same time. Uh, and I think that, that must have been something like what Peter felt when he went into the home of Cornelius. That here's this room that's filled with Gentiles who had come to hear him preach the gospel. There was a man there uh, his name is Wendell, uh, and he's an elder in the tribe, in the Yakima tribe, 
Um, Wendell and I became friends over the years, uh, but this was my first time meeting Wendell, and as an elder in the tribe, Wendell oversaw the ceremony. And he'd lived on the reservation most of his life, and, and he was no exception to the rule that just about everybody who lived on the reservation had a hard story. Uh, it's a hard existence. And um, the Chris, the missionary there, arranged for, for us to have breakfast with Wendell the next morning so that we could get kind of an insider's perspective on what we were experiencing, um, particularly in relationship to this, to this funeral. And so uh, it, it was no ordinary breakfast. Now, our conversation went deep fast with Wendell. Uh, and although he and I had never spoken, we had just spent four hours together the previous day for a funeral of a baby whose death was described simply as drug-related. And we, we spoke to some degree as people who had been through something together. And we talked about the struggles of his people and their deep need for hope. That's what he kept saying. Our people need hope. They need real hope. And I was caught up in the moment in this breakfast, and I just asked Wendell the question. I said, what does it look like for people to be loved well in your culture? And he paused, and he, and he said this. He said, when you, when you fall down, somebody picks you up. And then when you fall down again, they come back and they pick you up. And then when you fall down again, they pick you up again. And I, I took a risk and I asked Wendell, okay, can I ask you a personal question? And I remember he just kind of nodded his head. Um, see, I didn't realize I had just asked him a personal question. I said, what about you? How do you know when you've been well-loved? And his response to this caught me off guard because he sat there in silence and tears just kind of filled in the corner of his eyes and he swallowed hard and he just said, I need to think about that. And Chris told me later, because he knew Wendell's story, he said, he answered your question with his answer to your first question. He was answering for himself. And it, and it dawned on me that as different as we were, I was trying to understand some sort of cultural complexity that the people on the Yakima Reservation are just like I am in this regard, and that's that we, we all need the same things. We need hope, we need, we need peace, and we need peace with God. And we can forget this, but the gospel by its very nature is a message that every tribe and tongue and people group needs to hear. It's an appeal to all of humanity. We need to remember that, that the gospel is an appeal to all humanity, not just people who are of a particular persuasion. And so here, Peter stands in a room full of Gentiles, people who are not like him, culturally or religiously. But from the minute he begins to preach, what separates them fades to the back as what they all need to hear rises to the surface. So what does he say? He begins, this, this sermon that he preaches that Trevor read is just, it's straight gospel. It's straight gospel. He begins his proclamation 
by speaking of the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. That is the good news, is that because of what Christ has done, we have peace with God. Consider what he's saying here, what he's really saying. What he's saying is humankind, people, can have peace with God. People can have peace with God. That statement runs deep. For all of the anxiety and torment and fear and unrest that you feel, the things that you're thinking about when you're sitting on the edge of your bed alone in your room and nobody else is there and it just feels like a weighted blanket that's just hanging on you, that longing for the things in this world that are broken and eating away at you to be put right, that hunger for everything sad to come untrue, the gospel is you can have that. You can have that. And for some of us, it's too good to be true because we live every waking minute of our lives under the weight of that heavy blanket, just feeling the burden of it and thinking, I guess this is just how it is. But what Peter says in his sermon is, you can have peace with God, and you can have it one way, and one way only, and that is through Jesus Christ. Why is this good news? It's good news because apart from Jesus Christ, we're not at peace with God. We're not. In fact, we're at war against him, or as Paul put it in Romans, we're objects of God's wrath. Because our hearts have rebelled against him. We're in a cultural moment where it's very unpalatable to talk about the wrath of God. But scripture talks about it. Jesus talks about it. Remember Peter's challenge here. He's preaching the gospel to people who are culturally and religiously different from him. What this means to us is peace with God is not a nuance of Jewish thought. Things in this world are not as they were meant to be, and humanity's hunger is for peace, and that hunger is universal. Peace with God is good news because God is the creator and sustainer of every living thing. We were made for relationship with him. He made us in his image for relationship with him. And it's a kind of relationship that is unique in all of creation. You and I were created to relate to God in a more intimate way than any other created thing. But that relationship has been fractured by sin. I'm telling you what Peter was telling them. Straight gospel. That relationship is fractured by sin and we can't make ourselves clean. Without Christ, we are separated from God and there is no peace. But with Christ, however, we're not only rejoined to God, but we are cleansed of our sin too. So it's not a second chance scenario. It's you're cleansed of your sin. All that was wrong is put right. And this has universal appeal. Every generation and place on earth, in every one of them, sadness and frustration are known. All humanity laments the absence of peace and the absence of hope. Peace with God doesn't just address a Jewish problem. It speaks to a human problem, separation from God. 
And then Peter goes on in the sermon from proclaiming peace with God to something that you might find a bit strange. And that is he starts talking about the baptism of Jesus. Did you notice that? He starts talking about the baptism of Jesus. What's so significant about his baptism? Well, to the apostles, it was very significant. In fact, all four gospels begin Jesus' earthly ministry by talking about his baptism. Every one of them does, just as Peter does here. Why? Because some authentication has to happen for this kind of good news to be believable. Right? It just, because it's, it's pretty incredible what's being said. So how in the world would anybody say, okay, this one man from Nazareth, let's just put our faith in him. Because at his baptism, God declared that Jesus was his son. There were witnesses to this, that he was the one bearing the message that we all must hear. The Holy Spirit descended upon him, setting him apart for the work that he was called to do. This is relevant to Peter's audience because Jesus' baptism authenticated him and his lordship over everything. He says it in verse 38, God appointed... Jesus of Nazareth, sorry, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. So Jesus, what it means is Jesus' authority to give us peace with God is not given by man, but it's given by God himself. In other words, the one to whom we need to be reconciled is the one who gave us a reconciler. God gives us assurance of Christ's ability to redeem us at his baptism. And as Peter explains this to Cornelius' household, I love the way that scripture can be uh, terse uh, or it can make it just a statement that just makes you think, well, hold on a minute. I want four pages on that statement. And all you get is a sentence. But what he says this is he says, um, Cornelius' household, they listen to this and they respond they respond, and what we're seeing is the reach of the Holy Spirit. We see the reach of Christ's redemption extend beyond ethnic Israel into all humanity. And he goes on uh, to give the essential facts of the gospel to Cornelius' household, the things that are necessary for faith in Jesus. He talks about Jesus' life, <coughs> his life of sinless obedience to the Father. He talks about his death on the cross. He talks about his resurrection from the dead. And the result of Jesus' sinless life, death in our place, and resurrection from the grave is that he accomplished God's plan of salvation. He's the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. And this is the essential gospel, is that Jesus lived a sinless life, that he died a sinner's death, and that by rising from the grave, he broke the power of death's hold over us by paying the wage of sin, which is what? Death. Only to reclaim his life because death had no hold on him and to give us that life, his life. And this is what you have to believe in order to be a Christian. And it's this and this alone. Peter made an appeal for those listening to believe. He said this, everyone who believes in his name 
receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So the question is, what do you believe? Do you believe this? Do you believe this is the message that the world needs to hear? The gospel is simple. We're called to know how to present it, right? We're called to be his witnesses in the world. We have to be careful not to add anything to it, not to take anything away from it. But there's power in the proclamation of the gospel. Because here's the verse that's just kind of given to us. It's verse 44. While Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard. That happened. What things was Peter saying? Plain and simple, it was the message of peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit fell upon the Gentiles upon that hearing of the very simple basics of the gospel. Now this is where we get back to that question at the beginning. of What's this sermon going to be about? Do you have to convert first? And then here at Cornelius' house, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit resembled the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost on the Jews in Acts 2. At Pentecost and here, the Holy Spirit descends upon the people gathered. And in both cases, the people begin to speak in other tongues. And the response is that Peter and those Jews who came with him were amazed. They were amazed because they had never seen this before. This is a rare moment in history. Why were they amazed? Because what they saw was that they saw that the Lord was working among the Gentiles in the same exact way that he worked among the Jews. Even among the apostles themselves, God was pursuing the Gentiles just like he pursued the Jews. And seeing this, Peter says, there, there is no barrier. There's no barrier now. He says, can anyone withhold water from baptizing those who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Who was he asking? He was asking the Jews who were with him. He was saying, should there, I don't see a reason why there should be another step here. Because God has already blown past all of the things that we might have wondered uh, would be necessary. They had received the Holy Spirit. What was their response? The response was that the household of Cornelius was called to be baptized, to take the visible sign of belonging to the church. Now, why is this so important for us? It's important for us because it means this. If, if, you're, if you're in this room and you are not of Jewish descent, it means that Cornelius and his household represent you right? That the gospel comes to us. It comes to us no matter what our race is, no matter what our cultural heritage is. That there isn't a conversion to another religion that has to happen before we can become the children of God in Christ. That the gospel comes to Jew and Gentile alike to all the nations, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And so if you're in this room and you're not of Jewish descent, this is part of your story of faith. This is part of your faith journey. That includes me, by the way. I am, you're looking at a Gentile, right? That what happened in the home of Cornelius the centurion is part of the legacy of God's work in my own life and in my family's life. 
the faithfulness of God down through the generations. I want to close with a brief word on baptism because I don't talk about baptism from the pulpit much, but it feels like this is a good opportunity to do that because it's, it's kind of a key part of the story that, that in a lot, a lot of times we might think that, you know, a story like this, the way it should go is here are people who don't believe but are looking for hope and peace. Somebody preaches the message of Jesus Christ and they believe in the gospel and that's the end of the story. There's a celebration, but it's not. There's, there's an action that they take and that is baptism into the church. And so I want to talk about this because one of the marks of the church is this practice of baptism. Jesus told the church to do it. You will make disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's a sacrament. It's something that Jesus gave the church to do uh, in an ongoing way, in perpetuity, right? And so it's the practice of the church as a public sign and seal of a person's identification with the visible church on earth. And so if this is an issue that you've been wrestling with, it's something that you've been thinking about, maybe you haven't been baptized before, I want to make the observation and application from God's word here on the importance of baptism. Because what happens? Well, Peter's first command for these new believers is to be baptized. It's the first thing he tells them to do. Faith in Christ and baptism are inseparably linked throughout the book of Acts. We see it. We saw it in Acts 2. When the people believed at Pentecost, Peter called them and their families to be baptized. In Acts 8, Philip preaches to the Ethiopian eunuch, and what happens? The eunuch is baptized. In Acts 9, after Paul's conversion, as soon as his sight is restored, he's baptized. And now we see it again. Baptism accompanies faith. And so regardless of what you may believe or think about the mode of baptism, about the age of baptism, I hope what you see here is the significance of baptism as a public identification with the visible church on earth. If you are a Christian, but you've never been baptized, then first I want to invite you to search the scripture here on this issue. And the book of Acts is a great place to start because you're seeing the practices of the early church. Baptism is the sign that Jesus gave for us to be, in effect, marked before the watching world as belonging to his people. So back to the text. One thing we see, and I love this, is that Peter is still learning in this passage. He's still learning. He doesn't have it all figured out. He doesn't walk in the room as somebody who knows what's going to happen. He's following the lead of the Spirit, but he's somebody who had to come to believe that Gentiles could be saved without converting to Judaism first. But here he witnesses it, and it astonishes him. He doesn't explain it away, he embraces it. God is expanding Peter's understanding of the breadth and the scope of his saving grace. And it all comes back to one basic need that every single person who has ever lived shares, and that is peace with God, which is accomplished only through Jesus Christ. And so may God always expand our view of his grace and our love for the lost 
and our passion for his presence. And may a deep gratitude overwhelm us when we consider the hope of the gospel offered to us by nothing but grace through faith alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for, I thank you for narrative in scripture. I thank you for stories. I thank you for the way that stories give us so much more than just data, but they give us the winding path of the journey, the journeys of your people as they sought to understand and obey and follow you. I thank you for the witness and the example of the Apostle Peter. And I thank you that part of what Scripture gives us in the life and the story of Peter is not only his triumphs and his successes and his right answers, uh, but also his mistakes and his, uh, his arrogance and his wrong answers. Uh, Lord, it's encouraging to us as we stumble through and stumble forward. Uh, into the grace and mercy that you've given us. Father, I pray that even as we think about this story, that it, that it ministers to our hearts to remember that there was a point in time when the question on the table was, how far does the gospel reach? And that the answer is it reaches to the ends of the earth, especially as we consider that we are at the ends of the earth as far as scripture is concerned. We're on the other side of the globe, millennia removed, speaking a language that was not spoken there. And yet that gospel has reached us. It's a miracle. It's a miracle of the preserving work, persevering work of your Holy Spirit in the world. And so we thank you for it, Lord. And uh, we ask that you would continue to deepen our love for you and our understanding of your mercy and grace through our time spent in your word and your Holy Spirit illuminating it for us and you ministering to our hearts. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.